Thanks for listening to FYI Salem, the podcast about what's happening in the most hip and historic city in Massachusetts. I'm Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll, and welcome to the latest episode. Be sure to check out the FYI Salem newsletter and all the latest news from the city of Salem online at www.salem.com. Everybody, this is Mayor Kim Driscoll. It's good to be with all of you. Thank you so much for that really kind introduction. I feel fortunate to be blessed not only to live in Salem, but uh, to be able to play a part in leading our community. You know, I'm not a Salem native. I'm actually a Navy brat. Um, My dad is from Lynn. I was born in Hawaii, lived on both coasts. I came to Salem to go to school, to attend college here, and just fell in love with the city, fell in love with my husband, Nick, uh, fell in love with our golden retriever and our three kids who we feel so fortunate to been able to raise them here in a really welcoming and inclusive place. So I thought I would just share with you a couple of slides. I always like to start with our community's mission statement. This is really important to the work that we do in local government, that we're providing services that are open and honest, that we're always sort of thinking about how to be better at what we're doing. So that means looking at how effective we are, how efficient we are, and also with an eye towards the future. We don't pick up trash the way we did 10 years ago. We don't solve crimes the way we did 10 years ago. I think the culture here in City Hall is really one of continuous learning and trying to refine what we're doing in a way that makes it better in the interest of serving people who rely on us every day. So today I thought I'd give you a brief COVID update, talk about housing. That is such a key need in our community and we're doing a lot of work in that area. Um, Some of the new opportunities happening in our community, both tied to economic development and resiliency uh, with offshore wind. Uh, touch upon uh, the American Rescue Plan Act and then the Salem 400. Our 400th anniversary is 2026. And we're, we're really excited about how and what we can do now to achieve the type of community we want to be when we turn 400. So a quick COVID update. I mean, our, we're certainly trending in the right way. We feel really fortunate that we, so far we haven't seen another Greek letter uh, peek its head up and, and create a surge in, in cases. I will tell you, um, you'll see the shift in some, of the, in some of the data on the next slide. Just what we had to overcome with Obercron was very serious. We had ICU capacity and hospital beds in this capacity of the whole Northeast region um, in the high 90s, meaning there was not beds available for anybody who might need them for anything, whether it was COVID related, a heart attack, somebody in a car accident, our ICU um, often had one or two beds available. That's just not in Salem, that's the entire Northeast region. So um, this latest surge of Omicron really um, not only increased case counts, but in particular for people who were not vaccinated, it really led to increased hospitalizations. The good news is the trend is definitely going down. We're continuing to see case counts decrease, um, but we're also seeing vaccinations level off. Um, And that's discouraging to us that, you know, Omicron, we saw an increase in vaccinations with the surge of cases. And now we're starting to see that level off, especially with some of our youngest residents. So as you can see, this is just an easy chart to look at, you know, the big spike we had uh, tied to that Omicron variant. Again, ICUs throughout Massachusetts were filled, but particularly in the Northeast region, Salem Hospital has been one of the busiest hospitals, community hospitals for COVID case counts throughout this entire pandemic. Uh, It was very often, many of those days, we were at 98, 99% capacity, not only at the hospital, but with um, all of the Northeast, as I mentioned. That's really, um, when we talk about flattening the curve early on, a lot of those efforts were always designed to try and not overwhelm our hospital system. We came really close to doing that, a combination of the rising cases and just a huge staffing shortage within our hospitals. And listening to Dr. Roberts, the head of our our hospital here, talked about the difference from those early days of COVID when we saw spikes 
We had traveler nurses. We sort of had a cavalry to bring into health. In this instance, we didn't. And uh, just kudos to our healthcare professionals who worked under some very trying circumstances every day to try and ensure that our community stayed safe and healthy. Um, we, just so you'll know, the, some of the work that we do in our, in our community to really try and better understand how we can prepare and respond to COVID, we undertake a tremendous amount of surveillance and activities on a, on a weekly and sometimes even daily basis. So we still collect wastewater. This is a wastewater sampling. That has been a very solid predictor of what is going to be happening in your community down the road. They've sort of been the canary in the coal mine, giving you a good two-week outlook ahead if you start to see your, your wastewater you know, increasing, you start to recognize you have COVID shedding in your community and what are some steps you may want to take. Maybe that means going back to masking. Maybe that means thinking about, you know, other actions you can take to try and uh, diminish transmission of the virus. Um, we have been early adopters of weekly testing in schools and really believe strongly in keeping kids in school. So we are still um, uh, on a weekly basis testing students and staff um, at least once a week. We also now have introduced rapid tests, both for our students and for residents. Anyone who's a Salem resident who needs a rapid test, we have them available for free. We have just distribution pipelines that we set up, you know, normally tied to events before the Super Bowl or before holiday gatherings. But we have rapid tests available for any resident. We provide them to our small business owners, particularly folks who are in forward facing um, business enterprises, restaurants, movie theaters for their staff. And the whole goal of that is if you're feeling ill, you're not sure about your, your current condition, take a rapid test and, you know, don't go to work or take it at work. And if it's positive, you know, go home so we can try and cut down on the spread. Um, right now, we are still keeping masks in school. The school committee will be talking about that on Monday. I think our biggest challenge right now is just the number of kids we have vaccinated. We are running, um, I would say, in the low 50s in some of our uh, younger grades. And that's a real concern for us. Nobody wants to keep masks in place forever. We recognize that, um, you know, it, it does have impacts on children not being able to see smiles, not being able to see a face. But we also want to make sure we're thinking about how to make sure everyone's healthy and safe. Um, so we'll be taking that up. As I said, vaccines continue to be a struggle. Um, we are running a number of free vaccination clinics. We, we keep track on our data. We are calling every single family in our schools who are not vaccinated to see if they'd like to talk with a healthcare professional, if there's anything we can do to overcome some of that hesitancy. But it has um, been a really, um, a really difficult thing to um, work with families, and particularly families of young children, uh, with respect to getting vaccinated. The children's vaccine is still on an emergency authorization, so there's no way to make it a requirement as, there, as we do with chickenpox and polio vaccines and things like that. We'll see how that plays out going, you know, as we move forward. So this is just a breakdown of the dosing as you can see, um, overall in Salem, we have plus 75% of our residents are vaccinated. That's a good number. But when you really start to break down the numbers, you can see where we have some, um, some deficiencies and some gaps. So just to make sure you're clear looking at this, the five to 11 year old population, the gray number, that top line is the United States. It gives you a, an idea how much better Massachusetts is doing on so many metrics. The yellow line is the Commonwealth. So across the Commonwealth, 51% of, of uh, young people between the age of five and 11 are vaccinated. And in Salem, that number's at 47%. So we're trailing there. Our biggest number of gap where we're trailing is with our 16 to 19 year olds, our teenagers, where you're looking at the United States is at 75%. In Massachusetts, 82% of teenagers are vaccinated. But here in Salem, it's at 55%. It definitely skews uh, for us among young people and among Latinx populations. I was talking with the mayor of uh, Newton 
we were having a conversation about nothing related to COVID, but it came up like, what are you doing to try and anticipate and entice your students to get vaccinated? And in Newton, 85% of teenagers are vaccinated. They just have such a different challenge um, than we do. This, um, this we think is really uh, key for us in terms of wanting to keep students healthy and families healthy is uh, trying to overcome some of that hesitancy. We do require vaccinations if you're a student athlete or if you're participating in any kind of respiratory activity, you're in a play, you're in a choir. But so far it's still been a really tough sell to try and get young people vaccinated. The 20 to 29 year old population as well, um, that was at 50% uh, in late December. We really do feel like putting in place a vaccine requirement um, led to a number of folks getting vaccinated. We had that in place from uh, December, the Board of Health voted on it. That meant anybody working in a restaurant or going into a restaurant or a, um, a bar or a movie theater or a place, an attraction had to be vaccinated. We did see a spike in vaccinations uh, re related to uh, our young adult population in particular. And I think a big driver for the Board of Health in considering a vaccine requirement was what was happening at the hospitals, completely overwhelmed, um, primarily with uh, patients of all different uh, needs, but we know when folks are unvaccinated, they can end up in the hospital if they, if they come down with COVID. And two, only 50% of our young adults being vaccinated. That meant one out of two 20 to 29-year-olds in a restaurant and a bar were vaccinated. And, and that's where the vaccine requirement and the masking really uh, became paramount in their minds. We no longer have a vaccine or a mask requirement because we're seeing numbers trend in the right way. We just wanted to sort of touch on why the Board of Health did that. Second issue that we're spending a tremendous amount of time on and have really has to do with the housing crisis. We are seeing, you know, continuing to see housing prices increase. The only thing that went up more significantly than COVID were housing prices. Throughout this pandemic, we've seen no drop. There was a headline today in the Globe that, uh, that Boston area is in the top 10 in terms of rent increases we've seen over the course of the last year and housing prices for ownership. Um, it's a real struggle for a community like ours where we've for 400 years, we've been pretty diverse, different income levels, different backgrounds, different languages spoken. And we do skew with a, a population that's a little bit more economically disadvantaged. So, you know, while our household income is, much, is significantly lower than what you might be seeing in Boston, our home prices are only slightly lower. We are a very attractive destination for folks who are feeling priced out of Cambridge, of Somerville, of West Roxbury, of JP. We have a, you know, a beautiful city, it's vibrant. And that is keeping our housing prices really um, inflating them, along with really low, low, um, low, um, low numbers of housing available. So there's not there's low inventory and there's high demand. And, you know, you don't have to be an economist to know what happens then. Um, we're also seeing that bleed into our working families. For many people, you used to be able to pour coffee or pour beer for a living and live in Salem. And that's just no longer the case with rents going up as fast as they are. It's a really critical need in our community. Nobody wants to live in a place that doesn't have housing that meets some of the essential employees that we rely on every day, whether it's the person handing you a coffee over the counter, the person that you're dropping off your child at or your grandchild at that's taking care of your children, paraprofessionals and teachers in our schools. We're trying to attract and retain high quality teachers and their ability to live and maybe actually own a house is really impacted. I'm experiencing this myself. We have a 24-year-old whose job is in Waltham, but with everybody working from home, she is now checking out Atlanta as a place she might want to live. The housing's a lot cheaper. The, um, it's a cool city and the climate's better. We're seeing a number of young adults, really, uh, if you can work anywhere, 
uh, choosing to live in places that have housing at a lower cost. And that's going to impact Massachusetts competitiveness. It's going to impact those of us who want to have our young adult children, you know, living close by as they start their own families. Um, this is acute in our community because we know that our average household incomes in a place that has a lot of service industry is going to be different than you might see in a suburban community that typically have a more professional uh, workforce or folks who are engaged in a more professional workforce. And it just creates a huge gap here with housing affordability. What's driving our prices is low inventory, our desirability, we're sort of a victim of our own success. That is also forcing people out who live here. So some of the housing tools that we have under consideration um, our condo conversion, tenant protection laws, publicly looking at to leverage publicly owned land. We've done some work at our, our high school looking at that campus is large. Could we add some housing there to accommodate teachers or custodians or paraprofessionals? How do we think about uh, our ability to live a little bit closer to each other? We're certainly um, still having place an inclusionary zoning policy, which means as new buildings are created, I'm just down the street from the bricks, uh, one of our newer buildings that is taking um, the place of an old district court. 10% of the units there are affordable, and those are home ownership opportunities. So they're really creating an opportunity for somebody to invest in our community long-term. Uh, but all of the rental units as well do require at least 10%. So, you know, we're, we're always aiming to do more. Um, I will let these all come up here. So as you can tell, we're really excited about um, the work underway in our community tied to creating and filling community housing needs. Um, it took us a long time to get something like in-law apartments or what we call accessory dwelling units, ADUs for short, approved. They are here now, and we really want to make sure people recognize there's an opportunity to, you know, convert an attic or garage or a space you're not using into an in-law apartment and do that as of right. We want to support that effort. We're looking at housing development incentive programs to drive down the cost of construction. Any new construction that's happening with, you know, the increases you're seeing in both labor and as well as supplies is going to impact our ability to keep those units affordable. Um, we're looking at ways we can assist people with home ownership. Rental down payment assistance has been harder as housing prices have increased. So there are tools. A lot of these are federally based grant programs that we have, and some are areas where it's policy driven. Uh, condo conversions is one. We're seeing a number of our two and three unit buildings that are being converted into condominiums. Now, there's some upside to that. It creates a housing opportunity for somebody. Used to be at a lower rate, but many of these apartments are, many of these former apartments, now condominiums, are being sold for a half million plus. Um, what it takes away is the opportunity for somebody who's struggling to get in the housing market, who with a rent of a two or three family unit can afford the mortgage. Now those, those, those opportunities exist in much lower fashion as these twos and threes are converted to condominiums. So there's work underway we're looking at as a city to try and boost our opportunity to be a community housing model for all. We want people who live and work here, who work here to also be able to live here. So I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about offshore wind, an exciting new industry, frankly, in Massachusetts and in our country. Um, the state of Massachusetts has actually been a leader in this, identifying areas that worked for offshore wind. And our waters, the waters off the coast of Massachusetts, have been compared to the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind, meaning there's such strong, consistent wind, there's a real opportunity to think about how we leverage that to create clean power. And as a city that once was home to a coal-fired power plant, currently home to a gas-fired power plant, the opportunity to leverage wind to create power in a way that doesn't have any emissions um, is really, really key. And right now, there are seven lease areas. Most of them are down near Martha's Vineyard, if you can see from uh, 
from this slide right in here. The state goes through a, an RFP process where they request proposals to come in and then they award them to different companies. And there's a listing of the companies here. We've been working closely with Vineyard Wind who just obtained the latest, um, the latest uh, leasing area and will be designing offshore wind turbines and placing them in these locations to achieve 1200 megawatts of power for Massachusetts. All combined, these five projects will generate 5,600 megawatts, so a significant amount. And this does not incorporate the Gulf of Maine, an area closer to us um, that the federal government is beginning the process to open up. Um, to give you an idea of how quickly this came about, and while Massachusetts has been a leader, what really spurred interest in Salem and uh, interest in the, the next round of the offshore wind proposals that went out for Massachusetts was the change in administration. Uh, when President Biden took office, he did you know, a bunch of executive orders, I want to say in his first 48 hours. One of them was moving forward and launching you know, an offshore wind um, initiative uh, aimed at opening up offshore wind industry throughout the entire coast. So that then opened up New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Delaware, um, lots of places, states then began activities designed to enhance offshore wind. The good news is Massachusetts has been ahead of the curve. Um, we've been working in Salem, looking at our port down here. There certainly was interest by the owners. I should be clear, we don't own the port. There was interest by the owners of the property to look at mixed use development there. Mixed use is not allowed on that site. It's considered a designated port area. And working through our harbor port authority and our municipal harbor plan, um, we required that they put out an RFP to determine, hey, is there any other sort of use that might be interested in here that's marine related? And through that process is where the offshore wind operators came into play. So we're very you know, excited about what this can mean for our community. Um, this is the land that we're talking about now. This is the current gas-fired power plant that exists. And there's 42 acres, a large chunk right next to Blaney Street. This is where our ferry comes in. Um, this is the port where we've typically housed uh, cruise ships, what used to hold, which used to bring in coal ships. And it's an L-shaped area. And what uh, next to the South, South Essex Sewerage District, for those of you who don't get to see this angle that often, the gas plant is here. It's a quick start, very efficient natural gas plant with a permit that will expire 2050. So the goal was when this plant was built that it would be the bridge to a more renewable future. And it's just great to see this plan coming together that would enable offshore wind turbines to be uh, constructed and built on this site and then floated out to the areas where they'll be installed. So the anticipated future use, this is that area right here that I just showed you, there's the gas plant, um, is a partnership with Commonwealth Wind and Crowley Maritime. Crowley is one of the largest port operators in the United States. This area would actually be used, if you think about, they've described them as Legos. They're very expensive Legos, but these turbines are put together in pieces and they need a substantial laydown area to put all the components down and then to build them together and then float them actually out to the site that they will be situated. In the case of the area close to Martha's Vineyard, it's a pretty far way to go from here to there. It goes to show you the uniqueness of what you need to design a port that works for offshore wind. We don't have any overhead restrictions, so they can build the turbines as tall as they need to. We don't have a hurricane barrier that prevents the width of these very special vessels that they've created down in this left-hand corner to, um, that they will be building specially for this, uh, for this field to then float the wind turbines out. In the case of the Gulf of Maine, which is not permitted yet, but which we hope to, those would be floating turbines. It's just too deep to try and actually uh, affix them to the ocean floor. So a slightly different model, 
but still the need for these things to be put together, staged, marked, constructed, and then floated out. With our naturally deep water right off the federal channel, Salem's poised to really play a lead role in the offshore wind industry, not just for Massachusetts, but frankly, for the entire Northeast. What are the benefits to us? I mean, substantial investment in this port. What you're looking at is close to 100 to, 100 to $130 million of investment to create a port that can actually service offshore wind. There'll be port jobs, there'll be construction jobs. Um, there'll be an opportunity for us to also play a, a hub in research, thinking about the maintenance, the other aspects of this work that's gonna be required. Um, it will not be all coming from the private sector. It will not all be coming from the public sector. This is a true public-private partnership. Um, and we also are intent in ensuring that there's public access on the site. We really feel like from a Salem resident perspective, we want people to be able to go from this neighborhood all the way over to Winter Island as our longtime goal. We just need to be mindful of what's happening on the ground. There's already some terrific walking paths out there. We want to try and extend those in a way that'll work both for the site and for residents to get access to um, to the coastline. Um, so just in terms of what's happening here. So uh, we are in the works right now of trying to understand the technical aspects, the geotechnical work, the permitting that's going to be required. This port really needs to be ready by the start of 2025, end of 2024, beginning of 2025, because that's when they need to start actually floating turbines out to um, the facilities in Martha's Vineyard. So um, this is a, that seems like a long way away, but it's really not when you're talking about both construction and permitting. And that permitting process will be getting underway this year. We do have Kim? an act. Yes. Hi, I'm just wondering about how these are powered. Um, are they only wind or are they, you talked about thermo. Um, how, tell me how it works. I, I don't know yeah, how it it's works. only wind. So they're, um, they utilize, because our wind is consistent, fairly consistent in this neck of the Northeast. Um, it's, a, it's a very highly sought after. So these are wind powered. They do have, I think the ability to uh, turn off, but they're not something that expected to turn on. So uh, they are generating power by virtue of converting the wind <laughs> in such a way that allows uh, power to be created. And then there are large interconnection cables that will tie them into the mainland, into the grid. They may not be at this grid here. They may likely be closer to uh, Somerset and Brayton Point and closer to where the actual turbines will be installed. Um, it would be great at some point, I will connect you with the, the, uh, the Vineyard Wind folks to come in and they'd be happy to share their presentation with what they see happening here and how it plays in the larger landscape in the Northeast. Just wanted to talk about ARPA. Um, ARPA is the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, it's a federal law that was passed that provided direct revenues to a number of federal agencies and to the state and directly to cities and towns as well. Salem will be receiving approximately $35 million in ARPA funding. And the ARPA dollars are used, have to be used for specific categories. Um, so we can't necessarily use them just to reduce taxes. We have to comply with the federal law, which laid out where they thought uh, broad areas uh, that, I, that are highlighted on this slide, what they can be used for. It was meant to obviously think about how COVID's impacted your community. What can you do to create longer term economic progress and address some of the shortcomings that individuals and agencies and industries felt as a result of COVID. Um, we're in the process right now of working with a stakeholder group to identify what are the key needs in our community. We've done some surveys. We've had some listening sessions. We want to have a vision document that sets the stage for how those dollars should be invested. Um, we certainly have a number of plans already underway in our community from open space plans, resilient plans, um, uh, historic preservation plans, 
35 million seems like a lot of money until you actually go to spend it, it goes pretty quickly. So we wanna be mindful of areas that we know were impacted by COVID as well as things that could lead to longer term economic progress. And ideally we'd love to leverage these dollars. Our 35 million state also has dollars. There are federal agencies that have money. How do we work together to really amplify and raise up as much as we possibly can so that um, we're utilizing these dollars in, in, a, in a multiplier effect? Um, and I'll close with this. So Salem, as I said, in 2026 turns 400. It's something that um, I think is unique in, in the Northeast, particularly in Massachusetts. Between 2020 and 2030, there's a dozen communities that will be turning 400, hitting their quadricentennial. Plymouth was the first in 2020, and unfortunately, it turned out to be not a banner year to be celebrating anything, given what we were facing with COVID. Uh, Gloucester, I believe, is 2023. I think they've got us beat by a few years. But as we plan out what kind of city we want to have in 2026 or those sort of investments we want to make, we've certainly tagged on to signature parks. We have a number of green spaces. We want to sort of give our gift to the next generation to make sure they're upgraded and there's work in various fashion happening now. And this is, these are phased projects, so they'll be getting wrapped up in time for 2026. One of them that is, uh, we're, I think, excited about all of them, but in particular, Pioneer Village, which is currently in Forest River. The goal is to move that over to where Camp Nomkeg is, put it on the trolley trail, create a real living history museum that can not only talk about our early settlers, but also the indigenous folks who were here uh, when, um, when the Europeans arrived. And that's not a story that is often told in Salem, but we think it, there's ample opportunities to do so at this site. I'm going to stop there. I will stop the share as well so we can go back to uh, the Brady Bunch galleries and just appreciate your time. Um, my enthusiasm for the work in Salem is something that I'm, I feel really grateful to be able to work on. I feel blessed and fortunate to have not only a strong team in City Hall, but a really active and engaged community that uh, enjoys uh, giving feedback and input and helping make our city really shine. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to share a few words and I look forward to any, any questions you have. Forest Park, Forest, Forest River. Is that almost finished? Is that almost finished? Yeah, the pool is completed and they're doing, um, they have some additional work to do in the warm weather. They ran into winter. So there's plantings, finishing up the splash pad and a public art project and some of the trails sort of behind where the pool is. But the pool is uh, operational. There's water in it. It's a little too cold to go in right now, but it'll be ready for this summer for sure. It's exciting. Yes, it is. That park's had a lot of upgrades and it's just, a, we're so fortunate to have these public spaces on the water. What about the art, art initiative? Um, there is a, there, I believe there was something at the old state house. Was there something? At, um, the old town hall? Yeah. Yeah. So we do have a really active public art commission and we have a public art master plan that we have been working towards to increase uh, creative and cultural offerings in our community. Um, we really firmly believe in placemaking our new Charlotte Horton Park. We have had art in the park there. We're actually looking, that's an industry that's been hard hit through COVID. So we're looking to really take advantage of uh, live performances, music, and live in those spaces and tie into what so many people really appreciate uh, appreciated during COVID was getting outside and being able to enjoy, you know, quality spaces. Old Town Hall is among them. It's a building that definitely needs some upgrades. So we have work going on right now for a feasibility analysis to make it more of a creative hub. Um, there's a large basement that needs upgrades. There's restrooms that need upgrades. So we have a grant application pending with both the NEA and the state's cultural facilities fund to try and make some improvements in that building, but it will have life in it. Right now we'll have a number of sort of pop-up series 
uh, from dancers to magicians. And, you know, the, the goal is to make that a cultural hub for sure. That's still going to be, is that, is the market going to move back there or are they going to stay where they are? You know, I think, I, I don't know what their plans are for this year. Um, I know last year they did sort of half and half. Most of the year was at uh, Bentley School and then mm. they moved back to Old Town Hall when school started back up in September. I actually have not checked in with Salem Main Streets or the market folks about, so many people loved it at the Bentley School because it, you know, there's, it's just an easier place to park. On the other hand, there are lots of downtown residents who loved having it right behind Old Town Hall. There's history to that being a marketplace, and I'm not exactly sure what their what their plans are. Joan, my hand is up. Hey, Max. Go for it, Max. Go ahead. Okay. Hi, uh, Madriscal. Um, I've been talking to some people in downtown Boston and other areas, and it appears there's a question about the blue line reinvigorating the, the, the north again. Now, we know that a lot of that area has been sold off uh, semi-legally, perhaps, but it was sold off. So the, the question is, how are we going to put it out? And what, what line it would use? But the important thing is, if it does get to Lynn, chances are it won't get to Salem. But if it does get to Lynn, that will create a significant location for us to act, have access to, if not Boston, the rest of the world via the airport. Have you any heard any thoughts about how real that is? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely lots of talk about two things, Max. One is the potential for the Blue Line extension um, to bring that in uh, north of Revere. It's really tricky because where the Blue Line would have to go, there's condominiums built over the right of way. It's much, you know, much uh, a degree of difficulty that's pretty high. So I think a lot of the attention is turned away from Blue Line expansion to um, electrifying the lines, the commuter rail line, if you could make that electrifying the line and then make a connection to the blue line, either near Wonderland uh, or the crossover, you would get the benefit of what you're talking about, right? A direct connection um, to the subway system. Um, The benefit of electrifying the commuter rail would mean that you you could lessen the headways. So you could almost have like a subway-like system where you don't need a schedule. If you could get a train every 15 minutes, I think the blue line and the subways every nine to 11 minutes, there's a train. Um, it really gives you the, you know, almost the same kind of level of ridership opportunities and scheduling opportunities without necessarily um, the, the, the challenges presented by a blue line extent, expand, expansion. Um, we would have a challenge. The blue line runs on a separate set of tracks. And so we would have a challenge getting all the way to Salem because of the the fact that the tunnel goes underneath Washington Street and there just isn't any room to widen it there. Um, And that's what I think has turned a lot of attention to electrifying the commuter rail line. So Salem has the busiest stop in the entire commuter rail system of the MBTA. And this line, this Newburyport Rockport line um, that goes all the way to Beverly and into those Newburyport and Rockport has the highest ridership of the commuter rail line. So this is an area that we really feel if you're going to electrify a line, let's do it in a place where a lot of people are used to using rail, but let's enable it to have shorter headways and almost work like a subway system, knowing that folks aren't necessarily going into Boston nine to five the way they used to with work patterns shifting. Um, yep. So that, that's where the MBTA, that's where we'd like the MBTA to go <laughs> towards is electrifying. It would also be great for climate change. It's a major source of greenhouse gas emissions in so many of our communities. It's just, you know, we can't keep investing in the best 1960s train system. We need to sort of think about, you know, what's beyond 2020. And, and that's the hope. Yep. Well, that's one of the interesting things is that Salem is turning into 
quote, bedroom community, unquote, for Boston, because it's easy to get to. And it's, well, at one point in the, in the past, it was kind of cheap to live here. That's not quite as true as it used to be. But people are still moving here and, and working from here. My, both my children work from home now. And, yeah, no. uh, yeah that, that's probably the future. And if we can get more access to uh, public transportation, that'll draw even more people in here. And that'll help your taxes, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's always been, I think, a key to our growth is having easy access into Boston. So we want to try and do that uh, going forward for sure. And also doing it in a way that's got more convenience built into it. No, no doubt about it. It's not going away. It's here. How do we yes. make it more affordable and support the sort of lifestyles that people are used to? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of questions in the chat. Hannah asked about outdoor dining continue, even if COVID cases remain low. Yes, I think outdoor dining is here to stay. I think people really appreciate, um, you know, what it brings from a livelihood, the alfresco dining. It just immediately makes you feel safe, creates vibrancy. So we're working with all of the businesses that have been putting it out to try and make sure as we think about this, is there some permanency? Like the place in front of ledgers, frankly, we're thinking about making that just a wider sidewalk instead of having a big circus tent out there, creating a wider sidewalk that enables them to have tables and chairs closer to their location. Um, I would say Bella Verona is the trickiest one, Hannah. Um, but so far, I think people feel like if we have to short term close off that roadway to allow tables and chairs there, they appreciate it. So we're still marching down that way. Um, in front of Bambolina is another area where the sidewalk just gets tight. And does it make some sense to make these permanent bump outs now that we've done it for a couple of years and people really appreciate it? We've had a chance to sort of try it before we buy it. Um, so definitely happening again. We're excited about it and are looking to work with our small business owners to put that in place. There's a question in the chat around Winter Island, I think, uh, from Linda. You know, are there uh, plans to improve that? Yes, that's definitely one of the signature parks. We are really struggling with how best to maintain investment dollars for that space while not taking away the character, the recreational character of the buildings. We've got a huge hangar. You know, it's a, a former Coast Guard seaplane hangar. We've got the old barracks building. Um, we know that they need significant investment and we don't have all of the public dollars to put into those spaces. And yet when you think about partnering with the private sector, they typically want to put in place a function hall or something that would really take away from what we all love about Winter Island. You know, my kids think that's the only Waikiki beach. So, so um, it's an area that we love, we want to have investment in, but we have to be mindful of uh, finding a good partner to work in such a way that it doesn't take away from the things that we, we really appreciate about the place. We're hopeful that with offshore wind, there may be some opportunities for an industry matchup. If you think about a mass maritime um, academy or opportunities to, you know, work with even military or research facilities tied into what the offshore wind needs are. They may be a good partner there that doesn't necessarily overwhelm the character of the place that we love um, and, and bring some investment to help us pay for hangars and, and the historic barracks building are very, very, very costly. Um, a question about brick sidewalks can be very treacherous. Yeah. Um, can they be replaced by concrete? We're actually having this discussion, I think, right now. Um, we've got Counselors that are interested in requiring brick sidewalks in every historic district. And I think it's coming from a place of um, love for historic, you know, interpretation. We have these amazing historic districts in our community and world-class architecture. Um, and the brick is certainly consistent with what was there in the past. The challenge is it's not very accessible. They definitely uh, are 
twice the cost. So they're much more expensive to put in place and they're tricky to maintain. Um, we're trying to find a middle ground that would at least, re- if there are bricks, they would stay bricks. And if they are um, going to be replaced with something uh, with something else, as we think about new, new sidewalks, and there's a number of places we need them, we want to be a place where it's easy to walk, um, that we look at concrete and places and materials that are just easier from a, from a ability perspective. Yeah, I agree, Hannah. I'm, you know this battle better than anyone <laughs> with, the, with folks who really feel like it's a necessity for historic preservation. And they look beautiful when they're installed and maintained, um, which is very difficult to do in a public setting. Um, Newburyport does have really good brick sidewalks and most of many of those are privately maintained. Um, so I, I would just share that I think it's a balance of trying to make sure things are accessible. I know even on the pedestrian mall, I avoid the cobblestone. Most people avoid the cobblestone in the middle. Uh, and so we can maintain our historic charm and have accessible sidewalks. That's, that's the goal uh, for sure. Any other and questions? Yeah, I, I, let's just, if you can just briefly talk about the bicycles, um, the, uh, the public little pub, the jitney, that little, um, it, it, is that going to continue? The, uh, the bike share program the bu- or the, the, skipper, the skipper, the skipper, the skipper, yes. the skipper, I think is here to stay. We've given close to 40,000 rides on Salem Skipper. If you're not familiar with it, it's an on-demand ride share system. It works sort of like an Uber platform. It started out as an age-friendly initiative, but it's actually servicing every age group possible from young adults to um, seniors who don't want to drive or um, who, who prefer not to drive or who are not able to drive. And um, the number one stops they're making are all the things that you'd expect. The hospital, uh, shopping at the grocery store, uh, workplace employment. A number of our young adults use it to get to Market Basket and that whole shopping plaza where they work and the train station. Um, as I said, 40,000 rides, it's serving um, neighborhoods where we know individuals don't have cars. Um, some of the survey work of folks who use it on a regular basis have talked about um, it's enabled them to be car optional or car light. Um, we are partnering that with a car share model. So in Salem, we really do want it to be an option for you not to own your own car. Between Skipper, where you can call for a ride, we've expanded the hours. It also now goes to Vinon Square. We've partnered with Salem State, so you don't have to drive. You can you can get a ride within 15 minutes of the ETA um, of, of uh, when you call it. We also have a car share called Get Around, where you can rent a car on an hourly basis. We help subsidize the cost of the cars to drive down the cost. If you think about Zipcar, it's a model like that, except Zipcar requires a credit check. It requires a membership fee. This is much uh, lower barrier to entry, so you can have car when you need it if, 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 uh, if the rideshare service doesn't work. We also have our bike share, with, which we think is important. We're trying to get e-bikes and make that easier to get around as well. So we, we want to be a city, like so many places in Europe, they're so far ahead of us, um, that enables you to not necessarily need a single occupancy vehicle ride to get around. And that's our goal. Cut down on the congestion, cut down on the greenhouse gas emissions, and just make it uh, at eight square miles, we should be able to walk, bike, and get rides to places a lot easier. And that's what's behind Skipper. Only one last question on the, uh, uh, the electric cars. Um, I know you put this, the chargers um, in the, in a few of the um, garages. Are you planning on expanding that? Yeah, the state, we're part of a program with the state that is looking to really ramp up e-charging systems throughout not only Salem, but throughout several communities. 
to encourage more uh, the purchase of more e-vehicles. Some of the current e-chargers we have were earlier, um, the early, very early models. So they also need to be updated. And uh, in our garages, there's a couple that will be upgraded and you'll start to see e-chargers on many public access points with the goal of servicing a larger e-fleet uh, that we expect will be happening in our community. Um, Mayor Grishkel, there's you, you mentioned something two seconds ago that kind of tweaked my interest. Uh, access to downtown, uh, the pavements, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it, 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 it brought back to mind the areas of Europe where there is no physical transportation. It's all um, pedestrians and it's working marvelously over there. Have, have you thought of any ways we could kind of remove the, the, the vehicles from downtown uh, Salem? Because one of the things that bothers me when I eat outside, I'll, uh, um, I find that I'm eating a wonderful food and I'm ingesting exhaust gases at the same time. And it would be nice to eat on the pavement without salt exhaust gases. And that would yeah. be wonderful if we could create a, a, a pedestrian-only area. And I, I don't know how easy that is or how hard that is to do, but I know you have the capability of doing it. <laughs> Max, <laughs> you, you are making the degree of difficulty here very hard. <laughs> um, so I will say this. Um, there, you are so right about the number of communities. I've been to Oslo. Uh, Paris just announced their city center is going to be only uh, required vehicles and sort of rules around that. I think it's really hard because Americans are so car centric, right? We still rely on the vehicle as the major mode of transportation. We don't have a similar culture to many of the European um, countries that have taken on this car light, car optional, or removed cars from their city center for um, everything except deliveries and, you know, essential, essential trips. The challenge we have as well is they have a much better transportation system, right? So, you know, you have such great trains that run on time, very reliable, usually all access, and then modes of other transportation. So I think it's hard to say we're going to remove cars from a city like Salem, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a matter of course. I do think we want to look at how we can limit car travel during our busiest time. So for instance, October, um, if the October crowds we saw last year is the new normal, we really have to think about how we're going to manage people getting in here and, uh, and think about how we can even reserve parking. If I want to go to uh, Martha's Vineyard on the busiest Saturday in August, I just don't run down to the ferry and get a ticket. I have to book it in advance. It has to be planned. I have to know I have to set up at that time. We almost need to think about parking that way in Salem during busy October weekends so that you're not coming here driving around. I, I call it the spiral of death, right? You're just looking for a parking space that does not exist. It's not fun for you. It's not fun for residents. It creates all that congestion. So how can we manage that a little bit better so that there's reserved parking? We do have the shuttles that were set up. We gave over 18,000 rides on shuttles. So the ability to do more of that and have people really queued in on, take the train, organize your parking in advance or hop on a shuttle, but don't just expect to drive in and miraculously find a space. Doing that all year round, Max, feels a little tricky to do, I will say, but the idea of giving options um, and we, we can probably do some of that by incentivizing cheaper parking on the outskirts. We've tried to do that. The garages are way you know, less expensive than parking on the street. So park there and, you know, and walk in or bike in or, or you know, hop on a ride share. Um, and more of that as we have our busy, you know, our busier times would, would certainly be something we could try and incentivize. But thanks for that question. 
Can uh, I ask you a question about the harbor? Yes, please. Okay, so this has to do with the turbine construction. And since I'm a boater and since I'm part of Sail Salem, I'm wondering about dredging. I'm wondering about uh, harbor traffic and I'm wondering about the moorings that will have to be moved. What can you tell me? My understanding is there's actually some maintenance dredging that we're gonna need to do, which we would need to do anyways. Remember this area is right off the federal channel. So we're kind of poised to not necessarily interrupt mooring yards um, or, or just, you know, disturb permits. The vessels are, are large in terms of, uh, large in terms of how they have to um, align with the, um, with the pier setup because they actually have really heavy cranes and obviously lift, lift these wind turbines once they're put together on land onto the vessel. They're very specialized, but I don't think they're bigger than sort of a coal ship or a cruise ship or the sorts of things that typically would come in and out of uh, the federal channel. It's the uniqueness of this site and this port um, is really meant for this sort of activity with minimal disturbance. So some maintenance dredging. I mean, we've got a dredging plan where our municipal um, where our municipal pier is um, that would go out a little bit further, um, just sort of uh, you know to the right of the federal channel. Ideally, it creates just a stronger turning basin for really large ships. Um, but even that wouldn't disturb any of the moorings or the traffic. Um, I don't. I don't have a hard. I don't have a, a good enough understanding of how much traffic there's going to be. Like, like once they go out there, they're there. Right? So they're not the the, the turbines are not going to be coming back and forth. Like once they're installed, they're in. So there may be a, a convoy, so to speak, when they're getting set up. But I, I don't think you're going to see um, some sort of uh, super busy port that it's going to interrupt. You know what what folks currently do. Um, but but I, really, we need a greater degree of understanding around. Okay, what are the uses in this port? Um, you know, in, in terms of uh, the consolidation of when these are going out and when they're coming back. But it's it's not the type, it's not mass port, right? We're not creating a facility where things are going to be coming in and coming off. I think there'll be busy times when they're dropping off parts, uh, when they're putting the components together. A lot of things have to come in uh, from the sea because they just can't, the turbines are so long, they can't run on roads. So there'll be that type of traffic, but it is in the federal channel, Betsy. So I don't necessarily see it creating havoc, but as we get into the plans, we certainly want to know more. Be interesting around uh, Marblehead Race Week, won't it? <laughs> It'll just add a degree of difficulty, that's all. <laughs> you know, we're, we still want cruise ships coming in. So I think the beauty of this is that there's also some scheduling, right? This can't come in now, this can't come in then. So, uh, you know, I think there's workarounds to ensure the things that we love about what takes place in the harbor continue to happen um, as we move forward. Well, we wish you lots of luck, Kim. <laughs> Thank you. It's not boring, that's for sure. There's tons of stuff going on. You know, I'm fortunate, as I said, to, to be in a place that embraces the opportunity to be better every day, and that's what we're trying to do. So thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. And if something comes up afterwards, feel free to reach out. I'm at mayor at Salem.com. Happy to connect or provide additional answers or information if I can. <laughs>